Hi, and welcome to the Charleston School of Law podcast. I'm your host, John Struble. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or listen to streaming audio on our website at charlestonlaw.edu slash podcast. Also, a quick programming note, the 14th Annual Law and Society Symposium is just a couple weeks away on Friday, February 25th. Mark your calendars and certainly get registered for the event now because seating is limited. It'll be held at the Charleston Museum Auditorium. And what a lineup of guests we have for this event. We will be focusing a lot on mental health in the law. You can find out all the details, uh, check in on our speakers, and register online at charlestonlaw.edu slash symposium. Now, on with the show. Welcome back to the Charleston School of Law podcast. Our guest today is Carolyn Reinach-Wolf, executive partner at Abrams Fensterman LLC and director of the firm's mental health law practice. She will be joining us, of course, for the 14th Annual Law in Society Symposium coming up on February 25th. Carolyn, have you ever been to Charleston? Yes, I have many times, and I actually have a second home in Mount Pleasant that I love and is very close to my heart. You'll enjoy it here. It's almost 70 degrees. How's life in New York these days? It's a lot cooler than it is in Charleston. <laughs> it is a nice day here for a short while. Let's jump into our topic, mental health in the law. It is such a complex issue as I began researching this, and your work comes with a fair amount of stress. How do you maintain a good work-life balance under those circumstances? Well, it's true. My work is challenging, but I love what I do. I feel like I, along with an amazing staff that I have of attorneys and paralegals, we're all very dedicated to doing this work and enjoy it and feel like we do help people. During my off hours, I do a lot of reading of fiction. I like mysteries and I watch TV that isn't too challenging or gore. So we try to have downtime in that way, as well as, you know, socializing with family, with friends. There's enough of a work-life balance, I feel, to maintain, you know, some distance, but yet be very dedicated. We are on call 24-7, so it is important. I agree to maintain some work-life balance along the way. Yeah, it can really catch up with you sometimes. Um, I'm not a practicing attorney. I didn't study the law, but in just observational from working around those who are, we're going to talk a little deeper now. We are at at just about the two-year anniversary of the COVID pandemic. Looking back, reflecting on the last two years as it relates to mental health, What impact has the pandemic had on people who are already struggling with serious mental health issues? We have seen a significant uptick in, you know, the COVID pandemic affecting people with serious mental illness. My practice has certainly been busier early on. The isolation was really challenging for Mm. people. They couldn't get to their doctor's appointments 
patients. They couldn't be in their outpatient program the way they normally were. They were getting used to telepsychiatry, which many of the therapists had, you know, converted to. So there was the isolation, the inability to interact with others. Families had to take many people back into their homes in order to care for them or make sure they were safe and staying in compliance with their treatment. We represent a lot of hospitals um, doing their psychiatric-related work. Many of our hospitals had to eliminate psychiatric beds in order to convert them to COVID beds, so there were less opportunities to have people hospitalized when that was needed. People were, of course, afraid to go to a hospital because of the COVID outbreak, Hmm. the possibility of getting infected. It was as much as or more of an upheaval for people who have mental health challenges as it was for the rest of us. And I'm actually a former hospital administrator and a risk manager. Then I went to law school after that. So I'm very familiar with the hospital system and the impact of you know any changes um, that can be affected by working in the healthcare system and then certainly you know the mental health side of things. Mm, I'm real curious. COVID has created some real systemic challenges, not only in the law profession, but in all industries. Those challenges really run the spectrum of health. I mean, you've got both mental and physical. You've got ethical challenges, legal challenges. The day COVID arrived in the U.S., we did enter uncharted waters because you just don't know what you don't know. There was no roadmap, no best practices we could turn to address or combat the impact that it would have on our lives. When you look back over the last two years, how has your practice and policies evolved because of COVID? Well, our hospital commitment and court-ordered treatment cases converted almost the day after to virtual. Mm. Normally, they would be held in a courtroom and everybody would be together live and in person. Um, It was converted almost immediately to virtual, which meant that we weren't sitting next to our doctor clients. The other side was not sitting next to their patient clients. The judge was in another location. You know, that certainly was impacted, although I give a lot of credit to our clients, to the court system. Everybody just went with the flow as needed. In addition, our mental health professionals had to convert to telehealth, telepsychiatry, Zooming with patients, Zooming with families to do intakes. All of that had to get converted over to the virtual world. Hmm. On some level, it was more efficient because nobody had to go anywhere. Right. Of course, it added to the isolation, to the physical separation, to the one-on-one interpersonal experience that we were all very used to, um, including my practice. Mm. I have families. That's who I work with mostly. You know, would be in my office. I could show support. You can see people's um, body language and, you know, mannerisms. I was doing consults and still do for the most part virtually. So you lost all of that interpersonal interaction. And of course, everybody's at hyper emotional um, state, not only from the fear of, as you said, not knowing what we don't know Mm. and learning along the way, 
but converting from our usual MO to, you know, a new world. <laughs> so, and for those people who don't like change, that can just rip the carpet out from under you. I don't mean to laugh at it, but I mean, it can be really challenging for some people. Carolyn Reinach-Wolf is our guest. She's the executive partner at Abrams Fensterman in New York, and she's going to be joining us for the 14th Annual Law and Society Symposium in a couple weeks here in Charleston at the Charleston Museum Auditorium. You can register to attend and please do so soon because seats are limited, and you can do that online at charlestonlaw.edu slash symposium. Carolyn, one of the um, topics that you're going to be talking on is really shaping the system, the intersection of mental health and law. From a professional and personal standpoint, are you in favor of rehabilitation? I mean, we use the terminology of recovery and stabilization, Mm. but it's absolutely doable. And many people do recover and do stabilize and go on to lead the lives that they want to lead. There are a myriad of medications that are available and used to deal with people's mental illness, the symptoms of their mental illness. There are programs out there to help individuals who are facing serious mental health problems and issues. There is a lot available. You know, we work very hard to get people back on the road to treatment, to recovery, to stabilization. Much of the time, it goes to the issue of insight. Can somebody recognize they have an illness? Uh And mental illness is an illness. Somebody might have a heart problem or diabetes or a broken leg. Um, And we really try hard to work with our families and work on the issue of stigma, that mental illness is not because you're a bad person or you did something wrong or you're dangerous or any of those you know, things that are misunderstood about serious mental illness. Let me ask you a hypothetical, and to some extent there is some fact behind this. I have a family member who suffers from bipolar disease. Now, when that person takes their medication, they seem just perfectly fine. When they don't take their medication, obviously things can get out of bounds real quick. And usually the cause for not taking the medication is, well, I was feeling good, so I didn't need the meds. (laughs) So it's this kind of weird cycle. Who are the supporting people? Is it family and medical experts who you're really going to count on to give you insight? Or can you identify that as a legal professional and then say, you know what, we need to get this person to a good, healthy place before I can represent them? Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. My practice works almost exclusively with the families or loved ones of people who have serious mental illness. It's unusual that I work directly with the person who's ill. Insight and compliance is one of our biggest challenges because you're absolutely right. People experience side effects that are very uncomfortable and challenging for them. Mm. They feel better and they believe that now they no longer need to be in treatment. One of the big challenges, insight, being able to say, I have bipolar disorder or I have schizophrenia or I have depression, whatever it might be, 
to be able to say that and understand it and work with the mental health professionals to understand that and the need for treatment and then to stay in that treatment. So yes, that's a very big challenge. And it's really families who bear the brunt of this sometimes endless cycle of being in treatment, being stabilized, going off their medication, decompensating, often ending up back in the hospital and the cycle just starts again and again. And in my practice, you know, the goal of working with families is to establish a roadmap or a plan to bring in support services, whether it's case management or outpatient programs or referrals to the mental health clinical professionals with whom we collaborate and work very closely in order to try and engage or re-engage with the person who is ill or decompensating to get them back on the road to being in treatment and be able to function in a stable way. Carolyn, do you have to see a person who is undergoing some of those side effects or effects from mental illness? Do you have to see them reach a certain level so that you have a level of confidence that you can advocate and represent for them? Yes. Having done this for over 30 years, I'm very familiar with what patients who are symptomatic look and sound like. We've become very familiar with the medication, side effects, treatment options. We work very collaboratively with the clinical mental health professionals. And because I have such a unique practice, we're actually the only practice of its kind in the country, we've learned a lot of psychiatric terminology. Um, So we're very conversant in what that is. Also very cognizant of staying in our lane, so to speak. I can offer options in the mental health legal system, but I can also outline for people because of my healthcare background, options in the clinical system. And then bring in clinical mental health professionals to actually do their job in working with the families and often with the individual who has the illness. You're working with the family. So I'm thinking of all those skill sets, a level of social work, obviously a level of communication and sensitivity toward the family and dealing with them. When we think of our students and when we, what are some of those additional skill sets that you say pro bono work and do different things that will really educate you better serve clients? That's a really good question. I have firsthand experience with that in hiring staff for my own practice. We know what it's like to need to be available immediately. People are in crisis. Um, There are emergencies that develop and so on. In looking for people who might be interested in going into this field, you know, I think first and foremost, you have to have a certain level of compassion. You need patience. Um, And I don't mean medical patience. I mean (laughs) to listen, which I think is a lost art problem solve and understand the pain that our clients are going through. And, you know, as I said, be compassionate about that, but also be knowledgeable enough to step out of the emotion and work in getting to the practical solution and holding the line, you know, developing a structure for families who are so emotionally involved and should be that it's hard for them to see the forest for the trees or come up with a structure 
structure and a practical plan. And you also have to be comfortable working in the mental health space. Mm. Not everybody is comfortable with that, but you have to be able to tolerate you know, from a practical perspective, what that means, what the challenges are. You know, psychiatry is the only area of medicine that is so closely linked to the legal system. Every state has a body of mental health laws. You can only involuntarily or even voluntarily commit someone pursuant to a section of the law. There are a lot of laws that are set up to protect patients because there were a lot of abuses in the mental health system many years ago. On the other hand, some of those laws now I think are archaic and are not helpful and supportive of families. So it's trying to strike a balance between patients' rights, which is totally appropriate, and the rights of families who really are living and working to help their loved ones through a crisis or ongoing treatment or stabilization. Some of those laws are archaic and they are state to state and they differ. But are there specific, broader topics? We need to really look at this law again. One of the laws that I have tremendous difficulty with, and here comes my soapbox, (laughs) are the confidentiality laws. And there's the federal HIPAA statute, and every state has its own. I am certainly a proponent of patients' medical information being protected, but I believe there has to be some system to broaden the availability of that information to those who meet specific criteria so you can protect that information but who are involved and part of the caretakers of the individual who's ill. For example, New York State, as most other states, has a law that says we can confirm or deny that somebody is a patient, either of an individual practitioner or a hospital. Or we can't release any information to to anyone outside because the confidentiality rests with the patient. And only through their consent or signing a release can you know, mental health professionals speak to anyone outside of the patient. What it translates into in real life is family brings their loved one to the emergency room. They know they've been admitted to a psychiatric unit. Maybe they've been through this many times before, but the individual is angry with the family for bringing them to the hospital. Mm. So they're saying to the treatment team, I don't want you speaking to my family. I don't want you sharing any information. Now you have a family who has been supporting the person. Maybe they're living with them. They're the ones who take them to their outpatient appointments. And now they're shut out of what's really going on with their loved one. And most importantly, the discharge plan, when they're going to be leaving the hospital, what the plan is for follow-up. I'm not saying give everybody blanket authority to access that information, but I believe you can set up a system where if it's a family or an outside person who, again, is supporting them, who is housing them, who is navigating them through the system when they leave the hospital, should have access to that information. Or maybe it's limited access. Maybe they don't need every intimate detail of the therapy or the issues that have been talked about but they need to know the person's going to be discharged on a certain day. And here's the outpatient follow-up. And here are the medications they need to oversee. 
and to make sure the individual is taking. That's one area that I think really does need looking at and modifying to accommodate those who love and care for the individual who has serious mental illness and the patient, him or herself. So I'm curious, Carolyn, what does the what are the challenges of mental health in the court system right now beyond that that you see based on your experience? Well, we do a lot of court work, as you can imagine, representing hospitals. We get mental health warrants if somebody is in crisis. We do orders of protection and we do a lot of guardianship, you know, seek to have someone appointed who has legal authority state by state differs in their guardianship or their conservatorship laws. Mm. In some states, a guardian can involuntarily commit someone or consent to treatment, even though even though the individual may be refusing the treatment and override their refusal. In New York, for example, a guardian can't do that. So advise you some things in the mental health world, but not some of the things we would like it to buy the, the, the individuals. I think it's really important and we work very hard to do programs for judges, for others who involve, who are involved in the court system to understand a very specific and narrow area, not only of the mental health laws per se, but also about what mental illness is, what families go through in this area, as well as the individual who has the diagnosis. Some training and education of court staff, judges, other attorneys, you know, is really, really important, as well as the public at large. Educate people and to address a lot of the stigma that's out there. You know, when there's a, a shooting, for example, or a public emergency, you know, What's the first question that gets asked by the media? You know, is he or she mentally ill? Right. Start to believe that if you're mentally ill, you're violent or dangerous. In fact, the majority of people with serious mental illness are more often the victims of violence than the perpetrators. Wow. You know, that's a misnomer out in public. Many of the people who commit crimes are in a different category. They may be sociopaths or may have pathological issues different from somebody who's diagnosed with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. You know, again, those are medical issues. And so, you know, fighting the stigma, addressing that, there's a lot of misinformation out there. We work very hard in our writing and our speaking and working with our families to dispel a lot of the misinformation and, and, and stigma associated with, you know, the mental health world. What a fascinating topic this is. And, and I can see where it can start to consume your time because there, there are so many roads in and out of these mental health and legal issues. And I am really looking forward to being part of this symposium. I really appreciate the invitation and it's a wonderful panel. I'm very excited about participating. So my longtime partner who's been with me for many years is participating as well. His name is Douglas Stern. Yes. He does all of our criminal mental health cases. The New York representation will be in the house in two weeks mm -hmm. at the 14th Annual Law in Society Symposium. You could register to attend this event online at charlestonlaw.edu slash symposium. Carolyn Reinach-Wolf has been our guest from Abrams Fensterman. 
in New York. She is the director of the firm's mental health law practice. Carolyn, we look forward to seeing you in a couple of weeks. And thank you so much for coming on the Charleston School of Law podcast. Very welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.